Welcome to Nurture Small Business, creating a thriving space with your host, Denise Kagan. Denise is the president of DCA Virtual Business Support and has been a business owner for almost 20 years. DCA Virtual Business Support provides small businesses with an expert pairing of virtual administrative and marketing assistance to match your needs. Learn more at dcavirtual.com. Business geek, nomad, aging metalhead, nerd, and coffee addict. Plus, the only big guy at hot yoga. This is Tim Kubiak. For over 25 years, he has been building high-performance sales teams globally. Currently, he works with founders, business owners, executives, and high-performing individuals in driving results through best practices, plans, and strategies. Welcome to Nurture Small Business Podcast, Tim. Thank you so much for having me, Denise. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm super excited to learn more about sales techniques and the mercenary sales. But first, in your bio, you had mentioned how much time you spent traveling when you were working for the big corporations. Can you expound a little bit on that? Yeah. And it was a hard moment in life. You know, every so often you have those kind of wake up calls. I had realized pre pandemic prior to last year in 2020 that I had literally spent 20% of my life in a Marriott branded property. That wasn't my total travel, but I had lived in Marriott hotels 20% of my life. So on average, I was going about 220 nights a year. I took several hundred flights a year for a long period. I did a global job. So I would go to the UK and the EU for two and three weeks at a stretch, come back for a couple of weeks and then go back again. Never thought anything of it until it all caught up with me and got to be too much, too many time zone changes. And the reality was, as I sat down and I, I live in the Midwest in St. Louis, and I figured out I spend two weeks of my life every year getting back to the city I lived in on the connections, not the flight times to get to the connections, just waiting in an airport and then the additional flight time to get to my home and said too much, downtime. something's got to change. No wonder I'm burnt out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I suspect that that has a bit to do with how you've shifted to now working with the the folks that you do work with. It is. And and that was part of the journey back for me. I went back to the early days of my career, you know, when I worked in what was essentially a bullpen, nobody, including the business owner had a private office. I learned so much there so early in my career. And I also only ever traveled maybe three times a year. And that's part of Working with the type of people and the small business owners and the individual contributors is part of what I wanted to do. And the other part of it was I wanted to have a little more control over my schedule. Absolutely. It's all about choices. But during this process of working with corporations, you've learned a ton about sales as you've been building other sales teams. So tell me a little bit about what mercenary sales is in your eyes. So I joke, I'm a mercenary sales management. So, you know, and part of my standard answer is somebody says, well, why would you leave and go do this? And it's so uncertain. It's so unsure. You could have taken another role. And I said, you're right. I'm a recovering corporate guy. I spent nearly 30 years building businesses. I got bought four times. I did not cash out as a millionaire in any single one of those transactions because I wasn't the majority shareholder. I built big organizations, some up to half a billion dollars a year plus in revenue for other people. And I said, it just doesn't work. So I want to be a mercenary. I want to go work with the companies I want to work with on the terms that we both agree is good and go from there. And that's really part of it. And one of the things I try to help people understand, especially small business owners that are selling large brands, is they need to be mercenaries. That brand, if they dried up and went away tomorrow, 
That brand doesn't care. They're going to go find somebody else who's lined up to sell the product in the same space. You have to look after yourself and your own business first. Absolutely. And, and, you know, collaborating with larger companies is a good way to, to grow a small business. But like you said, if you rely on it solely and something happens, then there is, could be a problem. So looking at, you know, creating forecasts and determining market for a company, what kind of data needs to be considered? Because I believe this is like the first step in determining how you're going to run your sales is figuring out what you're going to sell and who you're going to sell it to. What kind of data needs to be considered here? So if you're a small business owner, the first thing I tell them to do is step back and look at who your customers are and the marketplace you're in. So I'll pick on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania a little bit because I'm originally from there. I know the market and I I have some clients there. So I know kind of the business breakout. They're in a business-to-business sales space. They've been there for 25 years. So you have your top tier of customers, right? So they're the big household names. They're banks that you maybe bank with people that make your beer or soda cans, right, et cetera. Um, and then you have that next tier. And now it's a major market city, but it's a small market city. And what we did is we stepped back and looked in it. And when they were trying to grow their business, one of the things they were doing was they were all going after that top tier. Well, there were over 4,000 people in the metro area that were businesses that consumed the products that they could were selling and services they were selling. They weren't nearly as sought after. Yes, the names weren't you know, ones you'd flash on your website and everybody go, aha, I know them. But they're good, solid companies, just like your own company was in this case, or their own company was, right? And we changed what they did. So they went after more of a mid-tier thing. So part of it is understanding who your customers are and who they should be, not necessarily who you want them to be. The second part is look at data from multiple sources. Once in a budget planning process, I watched a business owner go in and the one of the brands they sold was telling them, we're going to grow this much next year, and we're this and that, and we're this dependent on these kind of companies. Yeah, that was all true, except they were calling 14% to Wall Street, not 25% that they were selling here. Now, yes, there's different routes to market. There's different channels, right? Maybe that, that organization could have grown 25%. But then we watched people over-invest. So take that don't just look at what your brands are saying. Look at what external third parties are saying, whether they're investment grade or they're people that analyze that segment of industry that you're selling into or that you're selling from and understand what they're saying there. Great answer. You know, it's interesting that you say that because at one point before I had a little bit of that wisdom you just talked about, I was trying to jump into government contracting. Guess what? That is vast and really hard to get into and it takes a lot of time and energy. We kind of switched a little bit to what we're doing in more of subcontracting. And it's a it's for my size company, it's a much better fit. The level of output that we need to get there it works for us. Um, so I agree. You have to identify those different tiers. And we went after the big thing first, and that wasn't the right thing for us to go after. Yeah. So the forecasting and the data, that's not always something that the sales exec does. That might, or the salesperson might do. That might be the company execs. How can they help the salespeople be more successful once they've gathered all that data? So I'm going to give you the company answer and then I'm going to give you the salesperson answer. Okay. Perfect. So the company answer is they need to set realistic goals. 
And, and one of the things I've seen in recent years, and it happens more in big companies than small companies, is they set these goals and they build compensation plans based on the salesperson only achieving X, not actually hitting the plan. And there's a lot of stuff out there if people go look around and read, right? And that's why you see some salespeople moving that have been successful a long time. Because if the market's grown 20% and you're telling them they got to grow 40 and they're only going to make 80% of their variable commission, or if they're you know purely commission operated, they're not going to hang in there. You're going to lose loyalty. So one of the things is, yes, be aggressive. Yes, challenge the company to grow. But don't make it a plan that's not going to pay people. Don't don't manage your capital outlay because sales sold too much, right? If sales drives more and you have to pay them a little bit more, think about how you structure your plan. But yeah, you should be making better EBITDA anyhow. Now, from a salesperson side, you know, both sides of the coin, because I do work with individual contributors. So I work with some really high performance salespeople in a variety of industries. And every year in the November timeframe, I sit down with them and we start looking at how much are you going to make now? How are you getting paid? How do you anticipate getting paid? Is that going to change? And where do you want to be? And we literally go through the planning process. So when their company comes to them and says, here's your new plan, they can sit back and look and say, this fits my goals, this fits my objectives, or it doesn't. Now, this is a lot easier when you're in a residual business where you have a book of business and you know what your commission structures are. But the other side of it is, is if you're not in that case and a company comes in and puts a plan in front of you and is telling you it's great, but you've done your homework and you know you're only going to make 70% of what you made last year and you're still going to grow the company 20%, then you got to ask some hard questions. You either got to negotiate a better plan inside the company. It's not pleasant. It's not polite, but it happens. Okay. Or you got to go figure out what you're going to do next because these people are robbing you. So you address the not pleasant and not polite with, you, with your, your, your clients. You have to have the hard conversation. That's something you know, I worked for a Brit for five years and I may be over-rotated. So I grew up in the East. So I had, I'll call them East coast manners. I was polite in a New York way kind of thing. <laughs> right. You know, so I never meant to be rude, but over time, we've become so deferential. Oh, do you really think I can do that? Do you really think that's fair? Okay, well then I'll try. I I went to work for this Brit Simon and I love him to this day because he changed the trajectory of my career, right? And it was like, okay, you think I can do that? Why? Here's why I think I can't. Tell, Tell me how to get there because this math doesn't work. And he was fair about it. Now, when I came back and started working in the US again, I upset a lot of people <laughs> and had to learn to blend the two because I couldn't be quite as direct as he was over there. But you have to have uncomfortable conversations, especially as a business owner. You're going to have finance issues, right? You're going to have to ha- make credit decisions on customers and maybe they're not worth the risk and you need some more security. So uncomfortable conversations are part of life. Do them professionally, do them honestly with people but have them. Don't just let them sit there and wink and nod and hope it's all going to be okay. It's not. Good advice. Good advice. Absolutely. You know, uh, 2020 has been for some a nightmare year. Pandemics certainly altered a lot of things. How do you see the pandemic having altered the selling process? It's changed so much in selling process that I'm just going to focus on a couple areas because of time. The first of is the buyer's journey. Anyone who's been selling in the last 15, 20 years has seen how buyers are educated, research, and make decisions change. There's the above the line, below the line cost. You talk about tough conversations, depends on what level you're selling into and calling on on how to have those conversations. 
But one of the things, and, and I'll use this as an example, there's a large government contractor, okay, that reorged their purchasing organization. So even though it was a very formal buying process, the people that were selling into them thought they knew the people, they thought they knew how to follow the rules, right? And that's important in that kind of selling. And suddenly the person they'd been selling to for umpteen years was gone. And now they were buying for three other categories. And we've seen a whole bunch of that. We've seen in a large retail chain, literally it was somebody I was prospecting and I called them and said, hey, you know, here's what I do. Here's how we work with salespeople. You know, we kind of help you map out where you really stand in an account. And the, the CEO, I give him credit. He was direct. It's like, we've been selling this account for 20 years. We know everybody. We don't need you. Boom. Okay, great. Hey, if something changes, call me. Cool. Not everybody needs what I do at the time. About three months later, I got a call back and said, we're screwed. What do you mean you're screwed? You got it. Now, the guy we had, they packaged them out. We don't know anybody else in the purchasing department. Ouch. They hadn't gone higher. They hadn't gone wire, wider. It was a great account for me because I could come in, put some best practices in and say, okay, you really do know some people. So let's start leveraging across them. No, they're not the ones that are going to sign the contract. We've got to get you back to that place. So the buyers themselves have changed, what they're changing, and finally, the level of scrutiny because the pandemic has changed. And an example I'll give you is large technology company, household name, you'd all know it, literally got to the point where a CFO was approving $10,000 orders. Oh. Okay. Multi-billion dollar company. They were watching their cash. These are early first 45, 60 days of the pandemic. And the, the level of scrutiny and the, the level of approval changed. Yeah, that's highly unusual. It is highly unusual, but they weren't sure what their markets were going to be and what was going to come. So they were watching pennies, right? Even though they had millions or hundreds of millions in the bank, they weren't sure where it was headed. So we've seen the level of scrutiny and the prioritization of products continue to remain closer to what it was after the pandemic started rather than reverting back. So there's additional, is it gonna cost me money to save me money? No decision has become a big competitive position. Can I sweat my assets longer, right? Can I do with one less bulldozer? Can I refurb the old bulldozer, you know, whatever air conditioning unit, whatever you sell. And so that is actually something we're helping people get through, look at a services pivot, you know, look at positioning for when it is and understand that if what you're bringing in actually has a real ROI, how to have those conversations. Excellent. What are some of the adaptations that you've seen companies as well as your sales teams making as a result of this extra scrutiny and pivots for the pandemic? So the first part is you got to sit down and you have to really do the mapping, right? It's really easy to say, oh, I'm calling on the decision maker. Great. Who's the influencer and who really has the purse strings? University space is a great example there where things that presidents were approving and boards were approving still had to go to the head of finance in the university systems to get approval because they weren't sure how many kids were going to be on back on campus and this, that, and everything, right? So all of those things were going there. So where you map your accounts, where you do your account planning is one of the first areas you need to change. You need to make sure not everybody's important to the deal, but you need to understand who really has a stake in the game, who really controls the bucket, right? Do you have the whole budget to sign off on or is only 50% of the expenditure coming out of your budget and who has the other 50% and are we calling on them and are we talking to them? You know, the other thing is 
understanding how you're adding value and everybody loves to say, Oh, I add value. Our people are the best or this or that, right? Now, what are you actually doing to solve a problem? You know, and it, it's, it's a it talk about a difficult conversation, right? It, yeah. it can be a difficult conversation because at times what you're doing is actually just fulfilling a need. It's not really adding value and that's okay. Maybe you're selling a consumable. That's great. So your consumable delivered there on time, better, better quality, better last, whatever. You know, if you're really solving a problem, you need to make sure that you really deliver on that and that they understand it and that you understand the problem from the customer perspective, not from your sales literature's perspective. Absolutely. It goes back to Simon Sinek with the start with why, you know, yeah. it's, you need to articulate that value up front. And like you said, very, very pointedly from the customer's perspective, because there are definitely two perspectives. We have all of our sales verbiage and things that we follow that reasons that we've put down, but each customer is different. So articulating it that way is de definitely should should help with the sales process and then understanding how well you can partner together. Tim, how can someone find you after our podcast? So I'm a little bit of everywhere. <laughs> a home base for that little bit of everywhere is my website, timkubiak.com. So you can find my services there, uh, my programs there. I have a podcast, Bowties in Business, and you're going to be on it coming up and really excited to have that conversation. We talk a lot with founders and small business owners from SaaS companies to people who sell widgets and every, you know, everything in between to help people on that journey. And Bowties in Business is on all the major podcast services. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Tim Kubiak. I'm the nerd in the bow tie in the picture. I stand out. There's about 13 other Tim Kubiaks. So pick the nerdiest one with the white hair. You're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. And I am looking forward to being on your podcast. I think it's a couple months out from now, but I am definitely looking forward to that. And Tim, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be here today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's Nurture Small Business, creating a thriving space podcast. Learn more about your host at dcavirtual.com or by emailing her directly at denise at dcavirtual.com.